So, yes, good evening. Uh, I should tell you a little bit uh, about myself. My background in, in terms of uh, Buddhist practices is the Kagyu tradition and Theravada combined. It's a little bit unique. I am somewhat familiar with the Gelu teachings, but uh, they are not what my main focus has been for 35, 40 years. It's been a combination of, uh, uh, well, it's really more eclectic than just Kagyu and Theravada. That's how I started. When I first became introduced to Buddhism, um, I was introduced to the foundation practices in the Kagyu tradition, then to the Vipassana meditation the, uh, that it was, is very widespread now in the United States from Southeast Asia, uh, the Mahasi style uh, noting Vipassana that some of you may be familiar with. But then I was, after that, trained in the Samatha tradition. And uh, the Samatha tradition that I have been trained in really includes probably most of the meditation uh, methods that you've heard about or familiar with. Um, samatha is a, a way of achieving insight, so therefore it is a vipassana. As a matter of fact, it's properly called samatha vipassana <coughs> because insight develops as part of the samatha. And as you move along uh, uh, in this process, you do practices that are what you would be familiar with as Mahamudra. And so, uh, yeah, it's, it's a, maybe a little bit different than what you're familiar with, which tends to be a sort of compartmentalized, uh, isolated a bit of this, all focus on one thing, and uh, it, it covers much more ground than that. So, getting a lot of echo in Yeah, I'm um, going to bring an extra piece of gear tomorrow to help this out. <laughs> I'm afraid you'll have to suffer through. Okay, well, I, what I most, it doesn't bother me so much, but I'm concerned that it may make it difficult for me to be understood. Can you understand um, me all right? Maybe if I move the microphone a little further away. Yeah. Actually, what we'd like is to get a little bit closer to you because we're having closer. some feedback problems. I'm not getting as high as I can get. So I'd rather get your feedback. So if I get closer, we might be able to Okay, we'll try that. <laughs> anyway, so I'm not going to. Uh, make any assumptions. Well, I am. I'm going to make an assumption that there are people here of all kinds of different meditation backgrounds. And that some of you have been practicing for a while, and some of you probably haven't been practicing very much at all. And so when I talk about meditation, I'm going to I'm going to start from the from the very basics. And but I think you might find that the things I have to say, even if you've had a lot of previous experience and uh, have studied other meditation methods, I think you might find that the things that I have to say 
uh, are presented in a different enough way that you're going to find that uh, uh, it's not going to be boring. At least I hope not. <laughs> and although I'm start going to start from the very basics, uh, when we have question and answer sessions, I want you to feel free to ask any questions that you feel like you really need to know the answer to. Uh, it, uh, so don't don't hold back if you think, okay, well this this is an inappropriate question because it's too advanced. Uh, if it's if it's not appropriate for me to answer it at the time, then I'll, I'll let you know. Uh, but don't hold back any of your questions. Okay. What we're after is very clear understanding, and what I hope to leave you with at the end of this weekend is a really good foundation and meditation practice that will allow you to uh, to make good progress in meditation. So, yeah, I will start just talking about what meditation is. Meditation is training the mind. Mental training. The purpose of that mental training is to cultivate a mind that is a suitable instrument to discover the ultimate nature of reality and to uh, a mind that can do that will change its own nature of functioning as a result. It's a transformative realization. So meditation is to lead you to a completely new and different way of understanding your yourself, your life, your reality that completely transforms you. Meditation is mental training and the two things that we are trying to master are stability of attention and a powerful mindful awareness. These are two things that go together. As a matter of fact, you can't really achieve them apart from each other. Although, if you neglect one or the other, your progress in meditation can be very awkward and difficult and take a long time. But if you understand the relationship between these two aspects of mind and cultivate them together and use them effectively, then your progress will be much, much more rapid and much easier. The, the process of this training has been traditionally divided up into stages. The first person to present meditative training in stages was the Buddha himself. And if you look at the sutras, you're going to find uh, several sutras that outline meditation in stages. One in particular that, pro that provides the most complete outline. It's called the Anapanasati Sutra which translates more or less as mindfulness of the in and out breath. And there he outlines in 16 verses the stages of meditation, the first 12 of which in that description 
are a cultivation of samatha, and the last four of which are the realization of insight culminating in enlightenment. <coughs> so that was the first presentation of meditation and stages. And then, sometime later, Master Asanga uh, set out the same process. Well, he took the first, basically he took the first 12 steps in the 16 that the Buddha had outlined and reformulated them in nine stages. And then, uh, a bit later than that, Master Kamala Shila took the nine stages that were formulated by Asanga and expanded them to encompass an entire system of meditative training. That's called the stages of meditation. And this is what I'm going to be teaching you, is, is meditation based on these stages. And the reason that it has been taught this way, dating back to the time of the Buddha himself, is that the, the most rapid and effective way to achieve the goals of meditation is to understand where you're trying to go, what you need to do to get there, and to recognize that certain things have to come before certain others. It's absolutely essential. One of the biggest problems that many people have in meditation is that the instructions aren't clear and they find themselves trying to do something that they're not yet capable of doing, which is very difficult. It's like anything else. Uh, you know, if, you, if you're trying to do something, if you're trying to perform a particular act that requires a set of skills that you haven't acquired yet, you're only going to have an enormous amount of frustration. So, it's very important to understand the natural process by which you train your mind in intentional stability and mindful awareness, and to understand how these two work with each other, how they interact with each other, so that you can make the most rapid progress. There are a lot of people who have been meditating for many years and have not succeeded in getting very far in terms of these stages of meditation. And that's because they haven't understood these basic principles. And it's disappointing how much meditation is taught that takes no advantage of, of, this, of this wisdom, of this knowledge, this understanding of how the mind works and how to best achieve these goals. And so that's what I want to share with you, a way that you can achieve very rapid progress in cultivating a very, very powerful mind. Um, it's called samatha. I'm going to, I, I, I prefer Pali pronunciation of words rather than Sanskrit. Although I learned the Sanskrit first, I find that the Pali rolls off my tongue better. Probably spoke it more often in past lives. <laughs> but samatha, which you would know as, as shamatha, in Sanskrit. Samatha literally means uh, tranquility or quiescence. But as with so many of these terms, there's a huge amount that's 
pack into a word like that that's not quite obvious. The state that we would describe as shamatha, and shamatha is a, a state. It's, a, it's, it's an achievement. It's a cultivation of your mind until your mind, we say you have a mind that is in shamatha. And there's five characteristics of samatha. The first is attentional stability. Attentional stability of such quality that no matter where you put your mind, no matter what you choose to do with your mind, your mind does exactly what it's asked to do. So you place your mind on an object, on a particular object, it stays there doesn't go anywhere else. That object could be very small or that object could be very large. There is uh, attentional stability includes the ability to completely open up your awareness and prevent your mind from congealing around any one object as you simply are aware of many different objects arising and passing away. So it's complete control over the behavior of the attentional aspect of your mind. Second quality, mindful awareness, or mindfulness, uh, sati. Sati is the Pali word. And mindfulness is a terrible translation of sati. Um, because mindfulness implies the ability to pay attention or to remember to pay attention. And that's actually what samadhi is about. Attentional stability could be described as samadhi. Sati is something different. Sati is a power of conscious awareness. It's a powerful conscious awareness that functions optimally. I'll talk about the difference between attention and peripheral awareness in a bit. But it's an optimal interaction between these two aspects of your consciousness. And it is, it's a mind that's very powerful. If you look at the way that the Buddha uses the word sati in the sutras, you will see in the context, it's obvious that he's referring to an unusually powerful state of conscious awareness that goes beyond what we normally experience. That's the second characteristic of sati, is powerful mindful awareness. The third characteristic is joy. Joy is a state of mind. It's different than happiness. Uh, it's, it's confused with happiness. And it's, it's very difficult to understand the difference between joy and happiness until you've done a kind of practice that makes that clear. But there is a form of samatha practice called jhana, jhana in Sanskrit. And in order to do that practice, one of the things that you learn in order to progress from what's called the second to the third jhana is to clearly distinguish between joy and sukha, or happiness, so that you can let go of the joy aspect and focus entirely on the happiness aspect. So it becomes completely clear that these are different. But the third characteristic of samatha is this kind of joy, this state of mind. 
and it's a very powerful state of mind. It's a state of mind that naturally perceives things in a very positive way. And it gives rise to happiness and pleasure. And in that regard, it's very liberating. And the, the value of the value of this joy that comes from meditation isn't that you get to enjoy it, but you do get to enjoy it. It's really nice. But that's not what it's about. When your mind is in this state, then it's conducive to, to developing the next two characteristics of samatha, which are tranquility and equanimity. Because a mind in a state of joy is much easier to develop equanimity, non-reactivity to pleasant and unpleasant. And as a matter of fact, it naturally develops out of that. So when you develop samatha, these are the five characteristics that you will have. You'll have a mind that the Buddha described as malleable and wieldy. You can do anything you want with it. Malleable, something's malleable, you can shape it, you can do whatever you want with it. Wieldy, you know, you, it's, you, you can, it's movable, it's, you can use it, you can do things with it. So you have a mind that's malleable and wieldy, that has perfect attentional stability, powerful mindful awareness, is in a state of joy. That joy has matured to a tranquility, and from that has arisen an, an equanimity. And this is a mind that can easily achieve insight and easily achieve awakening. So that's what the process is about. That's where we want to go, right? Um, what the Buddha said about Samatha and Vipassana. Vipassana means insight, means special insight, super mundane insight into the true nature of him. What he said about that is that a person, that, that anyone who has ever become awakened has done so in one of three ways. They've either cultivated Samatha followed by Vipassana vipassana followed by samatha, or samatha and vipassana yoked together. And the samatha vipassana method is, is the last of these. Samatha and vipassana yoked together. Because in the process of developing samatha, training your mind in this way, it is naturally conducive to profound insights. And so it is very much possible to, by the time you've, you've finished the process of cultivating samatha, to have already attained the insights that lead to awakening. Or for that matter, you may, you may have awakened before you finished developing samatha. Enlightenment's an accident, and practice makes us accidental. So keep on practicing. What I'm saying is it could happen any time in the process, but if you, if you make it to the final stage of cultivation of samatha, you're a shoe-in from that point. <laughs> Can't miss. But it might have already happened before that. The, the other two things that the Buddha addressed, uh, well, vipassana followed by samatha, 
this is uh, this is the method that has become very popular in Southeast Asia in the last hundred years. It was brought to North America by uh, Jack Cornfield and Joseph Goldstein and IMS and Spirit Rock and a lot of other people do that. And another version of that was developed by uh, Uba Kin and Goenka has spread that widely. You may have heard of that. This Vipassana followed by Samatha is also known as dry insight. It's because you confront the insights before you develop the joy and the tranquility and the equanimity, which makes it a very painful thing to do. Also, in the specific methods that it's usually taught, you don't realize the emptiness of the self you don't have the you don't even have the sort of preliminary inklings of the emptiness of self that is very important to make the transition through the other insights with uh, without suffering a great deal. So in a dry vipassana method, you begin to have insights into impermanence and emptiness, but you still are you're still stuck clinging to your idea of, uh, of the self that you think you are. And so as you experience your entire world and everything you've ever known and all the meaning in your life dissolving, it's not much fun. As a matter of fact, in that method, that process, these are called the, the, the dukkha jnanas, the knowledges of suffering. And they have these appealing names. That, knowledge of fear, the knowledge of misery, the knowledge of disgust, <laughs> that you go through. But between those insights and the awakening, the, the achievement of the first stage of enlightenment, you have to go through, you have to develop samatha. You cannot become awakened without samatha. So even though you acquired these insights and had these traumatic experiences, the dark night of the soul, as John of the Cross described it. He was talking about exactly the same thing, exactly the same thing. Even though you've gone through the dark night of the soul, even though you've seen the emptiness and the impermanence and the suffering, you will not achieve the awakening you seek until you develop sanatā. So following the knowledges of suffering, there is a stage called the knowledge of equanimity towards formation. This is samatha. So you still have to, so that's why the Buddha said, anyone who has achieved awakening done it in one of three ways. So the two yoke together, samatha followed by vipassana, or you complete the process of samatha and then the vipassana comes. In a different sutra, the Buddha also advised anybody who was uh, developing great skill in samatha but not achieving insight, to, to go and talk to somebody about uh, you know how how to realize insights and anybody who was doing a vipassana practice without samatha to go and find somebody who knew about samatha so that they could learn what to do there. So you're getting us you know straight from the source. This this is the way to go. Learn samatha, and there is a method, a step by step method that is completely understandable. And if you take it one step at a time, the way it's set out, you'll make really good progress. You'll make very rapid progress. Okay?
So that's, that's what I mean by meditation. The word meditation, the English word meditation, gets used for many different things. And when, it's, when practices are brought from other traditions, uh, they call many other kinds of practices meditation. A very powerful practice is analytical meditation, for example. And one thing that happens, uh, as a matter of fact, if you're working your way through these stages of meditation, you come to a point where your capacity for carrying out analytical meditation is absolutely astounding. And your mind wants to do it automatically. And that's a great thing, of course, if you do analytical meditation in a proper way in its own time, separate from the practice. Um, but if you become lured into the anal uh, analytical meditation of whether it's Dhamma, Dhamma topics or the nature of your own life or solving problems or your own psychology or things like that, the process stops. That's as far as you go. But you have very, that's a state where not super mundane insights, but incredibly powerful insights into your own psyche and your own behavior and why you are the way you are. And, and, you know, in the course of your meditation, you'll suddenly realize what the Four Noble Truths are really all about, that sort of thing. So, as a practice, analytical meditation is, is a wonderful, valuable thing. Doing samatha practice is going to lead you to a point See, I, instead of Kamala Sheila's nine stages, I usually present it in ten stages. Because I have the first stage, which is establishing a practice. Which, back in those days, guys were in the monasteries, they had somebody looking over their shoulder, it wasn't a big, big, big deal. But for lay people, establishing a practice. So anyway, I presented as ten stages. And so, in my presentation of it, it's in the fourth stage that you develop this incredible analytical capacity. And so, if you do a samatha practice, and if you're following a course of study that involves doing analytical meditation, when you get to that stage, you're, gonna, you're going to be able to, uh, you may go back to analytical meditations you did before, and you're going to find that you can, you can penetrate them in a way that, that it's just absolutely wonderful. So, also, um, speak a little bit about other practices like Tantra and Mahamudra. In North America, there's a lot of people out there that, you know, they don't want to be bothered with samatha, kid stuff. I want the real thing. Teach me Tantra. Mm -hmm. Teach me Mahamudra. Teach me Sogshan. And the problem with that, and, and of course there's a lot of lamas uh, if they're willing to do this, you know. But the problem with that is, if you look at the tradition, if you look at the sources that these lamas are teaching from, if you look at uh, the great works by the masters of the past, on Mahamudra, for example, you'll find the translation translations about two, two inches thick or more. And if you look at the table of contents, you'll find that the first inch and a quarter are samatha, and it's only the last three quarters that is, is the actual Mahamudra practice. Because 
you have to develop this first. The same thing's true with the Tantra. So no matter what your interests are or where you want to go, the fastest way to get where you want to be is to learn learn the methods that are going to bring you to the point of achieving samatha as quickly as possible. You want to do insight meditation? Learn samatha. Want to do tantra? Samatha. Um, there is the uh, uh, meditations on emptiness, which are predominantly analytical meditations, but any of you that are familiar with that path know that really the analytical meditation on emptiness is a preliminary towards what? To taking your understanding of emptiness and making it the object of samatha practice. So, you should be developing samatha at the same time you're doing those analytical meditations. If you're not, you're going to have to develop samatha later because you can't reach the end of the process until you have the other ingredient. So, if I sold you, are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Right. So, samatha in ten easy stages. Um, let me talk to you a little bit about your mind. Just in a very general sort of way. Um, Well, to begin with, everything, everything that you've ever experienced, you've experienced consciously, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've thought about that, but you know, you may have driven here tonight. You may assume that your car is out there, but once you've turned around and faced the other direction. You're just inferring that it'll still be there when you go back. Uh, and I hope it will be. But, <laughs> <laughs> but all, that, all that we know with any certainty is what we're conscious of. That's the only thing we can know. We can infer all kinds of other things. We can infer mental processes that we're not conscious of. You can learn an activity and develop hand-eye coordination, and you can infer there's some wonderful thing going on subconsciously or unconsciously, but the only thing you have conscious experience of is, is the result. <coughs> so your entire existence is a series of conscious experiences. That's all you know. So let's start with that. Let's look at your mind. What you know from experience about your mind is the experience of consciousness. Conscious awareness. And at this moment, you are conscious of many things. Just experiment with that a little bit. Now, do this with your eyes. Focus your eyes on this flower. Then with your peripheral vision, while your eyes are completely still focused on this flower, take in as much as you can with your peripheral vision. You see people to the right and left of you, probably the walls, maybe the ceiling, the floor, colors, shapes, some recognizable. So 
there's the focus of either, there's the visual focus on this flower, and there's your peripheral vision. Now, your consciousness, is it not the same way? That at any given moment, your attention is focused on one thing. But at the same time, simultaneously, there's a lot of other stuff there. Body sensations, sounds, maybe tastes and smells, definitely thoughts, memory, images, all kinds of things. So, let's call that the field of conscious awareness. And everything that happens to be in it in any given moment, and things are constantly coming into and leaving your field of conscious awareness, right? Whatever happens to be in it is going to be in one of two places, or is going to be experienced in one of two ways. You're either going to be paying attention to it, or it's going to be in your peripheral awareness, just like your peripheral vision, right? And your attention moves from one thing to another, right? Where do the things that your attention move come from? Are they not very often, perhaps most often, already present in your peripheral awareness? So peripheral awareness is the source of objects of attention. Now if you pay really close attention to something, what happens to your peripheral awareness? What? It falls away. It kind of falls away, or, or collapses, or shrinks, or, or fades, or gets to be much, much less there. On the other hand, you can expand your awareness and take in a lot. What is what happens to the quality of the things that are at the focus of your attention when you allow your uh, consciousness to encompass more intentionally? Less clear, right? So this is what I mean by the power of consciousness. You at any given moment you've got so much potential power of consciousness, it can go into either attention or peripheral awareness or some combination of the two. So these are the two things that we're working with in meditation. Attentional stability, or if you think about what is ordinarily happening with your mind, your attention is constantly moving from one thing to another. Okay. something that's important comes along and your attention will rest on that for a little while. And then at some point your attention will start to move again. What's it like when your attention is rapidly moving from one thing to another? What's the quality of your awareness? What's the quality of peripheral awareness when attention is rapidly moving from one thing to another? Not very good. It's not very good. Same things with your eyes. If you constantly move your eyes around like this, 
peripheral awareness isn't very good. You, peripheral awareness is, or peripheral vision is replaced by a lot of brief moments of your eyes landing on this, that, and the other. The same thing if your attention is moving around. The quality diminishes quite a bit. So, we should ask ourselves, why is it that our minds have these two, why is there these two aspects to our conscious awareness, attention and peripheral awareness? What purpose do they serve? How do they interact with each other? The one thing I've already mentioned to you is that very often the source of an object of attention is peripheral awareness. So what's happening is that your senses and your thinking, feeling mind are constantly presenting information, sounds, sensations, thoughts, memories, images, so forth, in peripheral awareness. And the ones that are most interesting will be, become objects of attention. You have a limited capacity for consciousness. And so to survive and be effective in your life in the world, you need to pay attention to what is most important. Right? So the function, one of the functions of peripheral awareness is to pre-sort things and draw attention towards something that seems like it might be more important than what you're already paying attention to. That's one of its functions. As a matter of fact, the experience we have, if, uh, if somebody fired a gun outside the window right now, your attention would go straight to it. It wouldn't be in your peripheral awareness for a little while first, and then attention would say, oh, that's interesting, I think I'll <laughs> right So it can happen very quickly, or it can happen more gradually. But one of the functions, one of the very important functions of peripheral awareness is to make sure that attention is used effectively, that it goes where it's most valuable. And what happens when your attention is one on something and it's been there long enough? You start to lose interest in it. You, you're satiated with whatever it is. Attention starts to browse everything else in awareness looking for something more interesting, right? More important, more valuable. I have had that happen in meditation occasionally. <laughs> so this is a very normal behavior. Attention moves. The contents, the, the focus of attention constantly changes. And the function of awareness is to help make sure that we pay attention to the things that are most important. The other thing is the context. Peripheral awareness is present most of the time while we're paying attention to something. And not only can it alert us to something arising that we should shift our attention to, it's providing the context for what we're paying attention to and plays a major role in what the mental processing that takes place of the thing that we're paying attention to. This is, this is another really important function of awareness. So let's talk about how we want to train these things in meditation. You want, the first objective is attentional stability. You would like 
your attention to be stable. You'd like to be able to place your attention somewhere and have it stay there. Attention moves spontaneously, as we've just described, but it also moves intentionally. Okay? So really what we're saying when we speak of attentional stability is we would like the movements of attention to be in response to conscious intention rather than the spontaneous movement. But we've already seen that these spontaneous movements perform a really important role in your life. You probably wouldn't survive very well if there weren't these spontaneous movements of attention. If attention couldn't be called to something because it was important, if something couldn't be thrust into the focus of attention because it needed to be dealt with immediately. So that means that in meditation what we're doing is we're trying to take one normal function of the mind, intentional movement of attention, and train our mind so that in certain circumstances, like when you're doing a particular practice, that will predominate over another completely natural tendency of the mind, which is for attention to move spontaneously and to move as soon as what it's focused on ceases to be interesting. So anybody who's tried to meditate, you already know the situation here, okay. Put your attention on the meditation object, the mind quickly loses interest. <laughs> But it is possible to train your mind to respond to the intention to stay on something even though it's not interesting. Normally how long your attention remains on something is directly related to its relative importance. How much pleasure, satisfaction, pain, danger, whatever uh, that thing can potentially provide you with. And if something, if something that is more powerful or potent in those terms shows up, then the one thing is abandoned in favor of the other. So we can, we can intentionally direct our attention at something, and if it's something that's interesting, that, we, that, that provides us with a high motivation, it's easy to keep our attention there. But what we practice doing in meditation is putting our attention on something that isn't particularly interesting. And as a matter of fact, there is nothing that you can keep your attention on consistently for 45 minutes or an hour or more every day, day after day, that doesn't tend to lose interest. <laughs> so then in terms of developing attentional stability, which you have to have to achieve samatha, the very, very first step in this whole process is, is beginning to work with attention and to stabilize it. Means training your mind to remain focused on something, not because it's interesting, even though it's not interesting, even though there are other more, quote, important things. You know, your pet projects, argument you had with somebody, what you're planning to do, 
There's all kinds of more important things here. So, meditation is about training your mind so that attention stays on something because you have decided that it will. Not because that thing holds any great interest. So here's, here's one thing to keep in mind. If you want to train the mind, then forget about hunting around for the most interesting meditation object. <laughs> and people do that. I don't know if any of you have done that, but people do that. They keep shopping for, for a meditation object that's interesting enough to make this easy. But that is not the point. That is absolutely not the point. Because even the most interesting object you find, it's going to lose its interest anyway. But, and so you're just wasting your time in the shopping process. But for that matter, even if you find something that's really interesting, that makes it easy to keep your attention on it, at least for the first while, all you've done is delay the real training process. <laughs> because you're still going to have to do what you're going to have to do. You only put it off. Of course, when you begin to develop attentional stability, that means you put your attention on the meditation object and it starts to stay there for longer periods of time. You have an interesting experience of, of peacefulness, a kind of inner tranquility that you may not have had terribly often before. And it's quite wonderful. So this can help. This, this helps to boost the process a lot. And of course, uh, to reinforce that, it's good to reinforce that. When you have more stability of attention, and you have the peace, peaceful or serene feeling comes from that, then it's very good to allow that to be there in your awareness. Make that a part of your present moment experience. Because it's going to reinforce the unconscious mental processes that have allowed you to stabilize your attention. Okay, in that last statement, I just opened a whole new can of worms. Unconscious mental processes. Consciousness. We are conscious of sound, sight, taste, smell, all kinds of test sensations. We are conscious of thoughts, memories, images, emotions. Where do they come from? You know, it's probably obvious to all of you that a huge amount of what goes on in your mind is unconscious. Is that obvious to everyone here? That was a rather remarkable thing when it was realized by early Buddhists. Because the philosophy of the time described the mind in terms of the so-called six consciousnesses. You're familiar with them? And then, when they tried to systematize the teaching of the Buddha in terms of the Abhidhamma, they found there was a huge problem. It, you just, you could not account, you couldn't even begin to account for what was going on on the basis of consciousness and the six kinds of consciousness. So the first thing they did is they proposed a, a 
uh, uh, the continuum of becoming, the Dhuanga, called it Pali. And later on, this evolved to become the Alaya. But the Alaya, that, that encompasses all of the unconscious activity of your mind. So, you, me, this imaginary self that these five aggregates thinks of itself as, all we have to work with is the contents of consciousness. But the job we have to do is to train the massive amount of unconscious activity to do what we consciously want it to do. Does that put meditation into a different context? <laughs> yeah. So, you are going to take advantage of what is in consciousness to train unconscious processes. It is, it, there are unconscious processes. When you put your attention on one thing, it stays there, and then at some point it leaves and it goes looking for something else. Was that a conscious process? Was that intentional and deliberate? No. There is an unconscious mechanism that is looking on the one hand at all the other things you could be paying attention to and what you are paying attention to, and at some point it says, enough, let's go here. Or sometimes it just says, enough, and leaves attention free to drift around looking for something better. But this is a very real thing. There is a part of your mind that functions unconsciously that determines when attention should be released from its current object. Now this is called sustained attention. Directed attention and sustained attention. The Pali words are vitaka and vichara. So we need to train our minds so that we intentionally direct attention and it stops going wherever it wants to be. And we also have to train our minds so that attention is sustained in response to the intentions we formulated, rather than this automatic subconscious mechanism saying, enough time on the object, let's go find something more interesting. So, in the process of samatha, we begin by training ourselves in directed and sustained attention. The first step. Okay, I've said quite a bit about attention. Let me talk about the awareness aspect of it a little bit. Awareness and sati, mindful awareness. When your mind is functioning optimally, then awareness and attention are interacting in such a way that you succeed in attending to what's most important and what's most valuable for you to attend to. Your limited capacity for attention is, is used in the most effective way. Okay. And also, since the reason that you pay attention to something, we didn't really talk about this, but why do we pay attention to something? We pay attention to something because 
perhaps there's some perceptual conflict that needs to be resolved, or perhaps there's an action that needs to be taken, or perhaps there's a decision that needs to be made. That's why we pay attention to things more. So, when you pay attention to something, and your mind's going to process that information, that object, that situation that you're paying attention to, and it's going to come to some conclusions, it's going to generate intentions, and out of that intentions are going to flow actions, including subsequent movements of the mind, thoughts, etc. All kinds of things flow out of that. But that's what attention is about. There's this receptive thing. You're taking something in. Your mind processes it in all kinds of wonderful ways. And out of that flows uh, an, an understanding or categorization. You decide this is good, this is bad, this is something to be afraid of, this is something to be happy about. And then you act in response to that. Now, remember I said the, the second major function of uh, awareness was to provide the context. Because all this processing that's going on in attention, I don't know, it may seem to you like it's conscious, but you're only conscious of the results of it. Do you know that? You're already aware of that? You know, you say, I have to think about it. And that's a lie. You know, or you say to somebody, well, I thought about it, and this is what I decided. And that's, that's a total lie, because you didn't. The thoughts came up. This thought came up, and that thing thought, and the thoughts kind of went back and forth, and then one of them won. <laughs> you were just watching. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. So, so this activity that's, that's going on in the background, a part of your vast unconscious mind activity, is being guided by peripheral awareness. And that's why you know better than to keep saying what you're saying to a coworker when the boss walks up behind you, you know, that kind of thing. This peripheral information provides very important guiding information for the processing activity of what's, what's present in the tension. Am I getting that across? Mm -hmm. Maybe to help get it across even clearer, Let's talk about what happens when you lose mindful awareness. When you lose mindful awareness, somebody comes along and they says something to you, and it pushes one of your buttons, and your emotion comes up. You totally lose peripheral awareness. Your mind is completely focused on your emotional reaction, what the person said, and the activities that are going to flow out of that are going to be strongly conditioned activities from the past, right? So, this may be a dear friend that pushed your button. As a matter of fact, your dear friends, the partners are the ones that know how to do this best. Okay? But, as your peripheral awareness collapses, there is, as part of the processing of the current situation that you've been confronted so deeply, it leaves out the awareness that this is somebody that you love. Right? And what you do and what you say is something that afterwards you feel really badly about. 
but it happened because you lost mindful awareness. Because you cease to have that other part of consciousness keeping tabs on the context of the whole situation and providing the necessary information to bring about a more appropriate response. So that's just one example of why it's important that we have mindful awareness. It's also an example of the problem, which is that you can train yourself, and you do this in meditation, you will train yourself not to lose peripheral awareness. But no matter how well you train yourself not to lose peripheral awareness, situations are going to come up that grip your attention so powerfully that you totally lose peripheral awareness. <coughs> and the reason is, as I said before, this consciousness is a limited resource. You only have so much. And um, something comes along that demands all you have, and there's none left over. So that's why the other thing that you have to do as a part of your meditation practice is to cultivate a much more powerful conscious awareness. In other words, you have to become more fully conscious so that you have a surplus of consciousness. So that even when something happens that grabs onto a whole lot of the energy of the mind, you don't totally lose mindful awareness. You don't lose mindfulness. And that is what's going to allow you to make... Well, what it has the effect is it creates options in every situation you're in. It, creates options, choices, alternatives, rather than the automatic, mechanical reflex, reacting out of past conditioning, reacting out of your karma to the situation. It allows you to do something different. It makes it very important. So, that's why you need to develop intentional stability and mindful awareness. And that's what we're going to talk about in the meditation practice. I need to see what time it is. So I have a clock here, if that's all right. It's only three hours slow. <laughs> eight, 8.07. So we were going to go till quarter after eight. We're going to talk about some of the nuts and bolts about <coughs> developing, about cultivating these abilities in your mind. But uh, what we're going to, what what they're going to involve is using our very very limited conscious capacity to train the unconscious mind to do the things that we want it to do. Specifically, we're going to be training the mind so that attention follows intention rather than doing its own thing when you're in meditation. And by the way, don't worry, it doesn't mean that when you get up from meditation that you're in suddenly incapable of keeping track of what's important. 
As a matter of fact, it's just the opposite because of the awareness part that we're going to talk about. But we're going to be training, training the mind to achieve attentional stability. We're going to also be training the mind, first of all, not to lose peripheral awareness. And secondly, and this is something I didn't address yet, is that the kind of peripheral awareness, as we get good at this, we're going to change the kind of peripheral awareness that we have. And then the third thing that I, is going to result from our training is that we are going to become more fully, more powerfully conscious. So all the things that we're going to talk about are geared towards those three things. And maybe what I should say in the last few minutes is a little bit about the peripheral awareness. You have peripheral awareness of what's external to the mind. Right? That's the five physical senses, the material world, the body. And then you have in your peripheral awareness, even when you're focusing on your meditation object or when you're focusing on your work, whatever it is, in your peripheral awareness are mental objects, thoughts, images, memories, emotions. So we can distinguish your peripheral awareness as being two kinds. Called extrospective, those are the things that are external to the mind, five physical senses, and introspective which is mental objects and things of the mind itself. Now, of, of the introspective peripheral awareness, the most important part is not awareness of thoughts and memories and feelings. It is awareness of the state and activity of the mind. So over time, what you're going to do is you're going to start out learning to sustain extrospective awareness because that comes most naturally easy to us. So you learn to focus on a meditation object without totally losing extrospective awareness. And as you get good at that, then you're going to start making your peripheral awareness more and more introspective until ultimately your introspective awareness is going to be a continuous, very clear awareness of the state and activities of the mind. Now we're getting to the real sati. Sati bhajana means you know what your mind is doing, you know why your mind is doing it, and you know whether it's appropriate or not. And you know this in every instant, no matter what's happening. You're talking to somebody, interacting with people, doing something else. You have that continuous introspective awareness. So that's the direction we're going to be going. Anybody have any quick questions they want to ask before we move on to the next stage here? constantly talking to ourselves, putting, putting everything into words. Yeah. You say, what is that part of the mind? You mean, does it have a special name? It's a, it's a part of the discriminating mind, or the thinking-feeling mind. Um, and it's very, it's very closely connected to the auditory mind. Um, but you don't want it to narrate when you're trying to 
Well, what you, what you, eventually it will stop. You see, as you go along, and you, and you don't want to get ahead of yourself on this, but in due course, what will happen is that uh, the, the inner self-talk will begin to fade and it will stop. Associated with that, discursive kinds of analytical thought processes will begin to quiet down all the way. And then uh, your, your thinking and your mental activity will become very much non-conceptual, or very much less, I should say, become very much less conceptual than they normally are. And this, all three of these things happen usually around the sixth and seventh stages. In the sixth stage, uh, there might be a little bit of narrative going on, but it's like whispers in the background. And there might be a little bit of discursive thinking, but it just kind of comes in and then it goes away. And your, your perception becomes very non-conceptual. Even your meditation object becomes non-conceptual at that stage. Maybe the same question or a related question. Who or what is perceiving? Who or what is aware? Who or what is the is the entity or whatever it is that either? It's this imaginary guy up here that we all have. The mind the mind makes up somebody there. So when it talks to it, you know, mind's talking to itself all the time, and because of that, it believes there's somebody else there, but it's not. <laughs> What is it that believes? It's the mind. It, it is. It, it's your mind. It's the. It's the. Uh, we're, we're getting into something here a little bit advanced, but that's all right. What happens? Your unconscious mind is, is actually many different subminds, and the way that they communicate with each other is they will project some object into consciousness. And when it's projected into consciousness, all of the other minds can know it. It becomes knowable. And so when we say that we're conscious of something, we, it's really all of those unconscious parts of our mind seeing what's projected on the screen of consciousness. That's useful. Yeah. And, uh, well, since you like that, I'll add one more little piece. <laughs> There's another part of your mind that, you know, all of, all of these unconscious subminds are projecting bits of information into consciousness, but they go one at a time. And so there's another part of the mind that takes chunks, series of these things in consciousness, and it processes them and makes them into a little story and projects that story back. And that's where we get our sense of, of, of I and, and, and the world and it from. So, for example, visual consciousness projects color and image into consciousness. And then discriminating mind takes that and says, oh, that's an Oriole. And then if you happen to like those colors and shape, and if you feel proud of yourself for recognizing that it's an Oriole, then the, the feeling of, of pleasure is part of the conscious experience as well. So then this other part of your mind takes this, and it, it takes 
Do you see, and the image was only the image, nothing else. And the, and the cognition of it as an aureole was nothing but a concept. Just concept comes up, and that's it. And as far as the hedonic feelings, it was just, just the pleasure. It came and it went. But this other part of your mind, it takes that whole thing and it weaves it into a story. It says, well, I saw a bird, recognized it was an aureole, and boy, did it ever make me happy. <laughs> and the rest of your mind sees that, and it says, ah, there's an eye. Oh, there's a world out there with Orioles in it. <coughs> and this just goes on and on. And so we think we have a self. And, you know, but it all came from the mind. Didn't have any other source. So how are you experiencing happiness if you're empty? What's that? How are you experiencing that kind of happiness if you're empty? Not identifying an eye. Well, you see that all of those things arose in consciousness, and the part of your mind that put them into a meaning, that made meaning for them, that isn't the source of the problem. The, the, that part of your mind just used the I as a convenience, but the pleasure was there. It was there anyway. It was already there. Right? So it's just the mistake that's made by your discriminating mind is believing in, you know, when, when, when this one part of your mind says, I saw it, and I recognized it, and I enjoyed it, the other part of your mind takes this and makes it into an I and some external object that the image and that the concept and the feeling all have reference to. You see what I'm saying? Well, all those, all those other things were there, and they're necessary and desirable. And even that part of your mind that organizes them and presents them in, in this sort of story-like manner so they have meaning, that's absolutely essential and important. That's not the problem. The only problem is when the discriminating mind views this on the screen of consciousness and thinks it's real. You get over that and most of your problems are gone. <laughs> And that's where you're going with this. I mean, all of these things I'm telling you about, in meditation, you see these things. You understand these things. You have direct experience of these things. You know, it all makes sense. Right now, if you read about um, the, uh, the uh, eight consciousnesses of the Yogacara school, uh, you'll really wrestle with that, and it'll be so hard to figure out what on earth is this stuff talking about. You do meditation. I mean, we're Yogacara. What? This is where it all came from. The eight mind system came from meditators. Came from meditators finding words to describe what they had discovered when they sat down, shut their eyes, and looked inside. So you you will you'll discover all these things. You'll go back and you'll look at those descriptions and you'll say, Oh, yeah, of course, obvious. <laughs>